Section 12 of Smithsonian Institution, United States National Museum. Bulletin 240, Contributions from the Museum of History and Technology. Papers 34 through 44 on Science and Technology by the Museum of History and Technology. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Paper 38, The Earliest Electromagnetic Instruments by Robert A. Chipman. Part 2. The following are the three candidates whose names are variously associated with the invention of the first constructed electromagnetic instrument, or multiplier, or primitive galvanometer. Johann Salomo Christoph Schweiger, 1779-1857. In 1820, had already been editor for several years of the Journal for Chemie und Physik, and was professor of chemistry at the University of Halle. Johann Christian Pogendorf, 1796-1877, in 1820, had only recently entered the University of Berlin as a student following several years as an apothecary's apprentice, and a brief period as an apothecary. Four years later, he succeeded Gilbert as editor of the influential Annalen de Physique, a position he held for more than fifty years. James Cumming, 1771 to 1861, in 1820, was professor of chemistry at Cambridge University. Chronology and Priority The earliest established date in the multiplier record is September 16, 1820, when Schweiger read his first paper to the Natural Philosophy Society of Halle. There seems to be no reason to doubt that this report justifies the frequently used label Schweiger's multiplier. In an exuberant support of Schweiger's position, Später, with no mention of coming and no hint of invention details, shows that Pogendorf, in 1821, admitted Schweiger's priority, but suffered some lapse of memory forty years later when writing sections of his biographical dictionary, leaving a distinct suggestion that the invention was his. Further confusion for later generations resulted from some ambiguous entries in the Allgemeine Deutsche Biographie of 1888. The name Multiplier seems not to have originated with Schweiger himself. Später credits it to Meinecke as working editor of Schweiger's journal, but Seebach seems to have used it much earlier. Conceding priority of conception to Schweiger, Cumming has not been a real competitor on this point, does not alter the fact that all three seem to have reached their results independently of one another, that the first work of each on this subject was published within a period of five months, that there were significant differences in their conceptions of the uses and the optimum design of their devices, and that between them they provided an adequate foundation for the subsequent development of the galvanometer to become the primary electrical measuring instrument. In the matter of a publication, Schweiger, as editor of what was popularly called Schweiger's Journal, had an obvious advantage, and presented his experiments beginning on page one of the first volume of his journal for 1821, published January 1 of that year. Orsted's paper had appeared two volumes previously. He began by referring to Orsted's discovery as the most interesting to be presented in a thousand years of the history of magnetism. He was, in fact, so impressed with the epical nature of Orsted's achievement that he commemorated it by giving his journal a second title, 
so that Volume One of the new title could begin in the year after Orsted's publication. Hogendorf, as a relatively junior student, had no such easy access to publicity. He had a staunch admirer in one of his professors, Paul Ehrman, at the University of Berlin. Ehrman added a seven-page postscript on Pogendorf's invention to his book, Outline of the Physical Aspects of the Electrochemical Magnetism Discovered by Professor Orsted, published before April 1821, with an introductory paragraph. Herr Pogendorf, who was one of the most excellent ornaments of the lecture room and laboratory of the university here, carried out a very coherent and well-conceived investigation of electrochemical magnetism, leading step-by-step step to a method of amplifying this activity phenomenon by means of itself. The postscript begins by referring to the condenser, condensator, just brought to my attention by Herr Pogendorf, and explains that he cannot release his treatise without preliminary announcement of the subject of the highest importance. It can be inferred from the text that the name condenser was chosen because of the device's enhancing of magnetic measurements analogously to the enhancing of electric measurements by Volta's electrostatic condenser. Immediately on reading the book, Schweiger published extracts, mainly of the postscript, with indignant comments on Ehrman's remissness, or worse, and having failed to mention Schweiger's prior work. However, Ehrman was not alone in his unawareness, if it was that, of Schweiger's discovery. Rival editor Gilbert, of the Annalinder Physique, reviewed Ehrman at much greater length than Schweiger, reprinting most of the postscript, with evident enthusiasm, and stating in his preamble that the invention is attributed to a young physicist studying here in Berlin, Herr Pogendorf. Only in a footnote is the reader directed to another footnote in the next article in the volume, where Gilbert finally states that he cannot leave unmentioned the fact that this amplifying apparatus seems to be due to Herr Professor Schweiger. He then quotes rather fully from Schweiger's first two papers. Orsted in 1823 explained the situation thus. The work of Mr. Pogendorf, having been mentioned in a book on electromagnetism by the celebrated Mr. Ehrman, published very shortly after its discovery, became known to many scientists before that of Mr. Schweiger. This is the reason for the same apparatus carrying different names. The same confusion is well illustrated by the paper to which Gilbert attached his confessional footnote mentioned above. Written by Professor Rashik of Dresden on April 3, 1821, the paper is entitled Experiments with the Electromagnetic Multiplier, but the device, throughout the paper, is repeatedly referred to in the phrase Pogendorf's Condenser, or rather Multiplier an awkward combination that suggests editorial intervention. The work of James Cumming at Cambridge is described in two papers, which he read to the Cambridge Philosophical Society in 1821, which were then duly published in the transactions of that society. The first, On the Connection of Galvanism and Magnetism, was read April 2, 1821, and the second, On the Application of Magnetism as a Measure of Electricity, was first read a few weeks later on May 21st. Though he quotes some unrelated 18th-century experiments by Ritter in Germany, an 1807 publication of Orsted's and electromagnetic experiments with solenoids performed by Arago and Ampere in late 1820 
Cumming makes no mention of Schweiger or Pogendorf, and never uses the word multiplier. It therefore seems probable that his work was done without the knowledge of the German publications or inventions. Original Electromagnetic Multipliers Of the three sets of instruments made, respectively by Schweiger, Pogendorf, and Cumming, those of Schweiger are the most elementary, and the least realistic from a practical point of view. He makes little effort to investigate the effect of any design parameters, but presents some odd conductor configurations that involve unimportant variations of the basic principle. The following extracts from his first three papers contain the major references to his conception, construction, and use of his multiplier. Paper read in Halle, September 16, 1820. That a powerful voltaic pile is required for these experiments of Orsted, I have confirmed in my physics lectures using an electric pile that was so strong it would easily produce potassium metal the second and third day after it was built. However, I soon saw that the electromagnetic effect was related, not to the pile, but to the simple circuit, and I was thereby led to perform the experiment with much greater sensitivity. To amplify these electromagnetic phenomena of the simple circuit, it seemed to me necessary to adopt a different arrangement from that initiated by Volta, in order that the electrical phenomena of his simple circuit might be raised to a higher degree. Since a reversal of the effect occurs according to whether the connecting wire lies over or under the needle, and likewise according to whether the wire leads from the positive or negative pole, thence I say it is an easy inference that a doubling of the effect is attainable, which is verified in practice. I present to the society the simple doubling apparatus for Doppelungsapparat, where the compass is placed between the two wires passing around it. A multiplication of the effect is easily obtained when the wire is not just once, but many times wound around. A single turn suffices, however, to demonstrate Orsted's experiments using small strips of zinc and copper dipped in ammonium chloride solution. Amid innumerable rambling theorizations, such as that hydrogenation affects magnetism as oxidation affects galvanism, or sulfur, phosphorus, and carbon are especially significant in magnetism, since iron, in combination with any of these inflammable materials, becomes a magnet material. Schweiger announces that he looked for the reactive force of the needle on the connecting wire in the simple Orsted experiment, and he used his amplifying apparatus to look for magnetic effects of an electrostatic machine, but without success in both cases. He suggests that he will continue with many more electromagnetic experiments, because with the use of the doubling apparatus, the needle, instead of needing for excitation a cell capable of generating sparks, approaches more closely the sensitivity of a twitching nerve. However, additional special experiments are required to find to what limits the amplification can be increased by the method I have created in the construction of this doubling apparatus using multiple turns of wire. Paper read in Halle, November 4th, 1820. The first half of this paper describes successful observations of the reaction force of a magnetic needle on the connecting wire of a voltaic circuit, achieved by pivoting the connecting wire in the form of brass needles above and below the compass needle. Though the multiplier configuration of needle and wire is in fact present here, Schweiger does not mention it, 
evidently regarding this as a separate project. He continues, In my lecture of September 16th, I showed that Orsted's results depend not on the voltaic cell, but on the connecting circuit. The principle I have used for amplification of the effects for the construction of an electromagnetic battery, as it were, was the winding of wire around the compass, and I now present to the society a bow pattern of multiple wound wax insulated wire, figure three. There were no illustrations with Schweiger's first paper. While a single wire, using the weak electric circuit here, deflects the magnetic needle only 30 degrees or 40 degrees, if the compass is placed in one of the openings of this pattern, the needle is deflected 90 degrees to the east, or in the other opening, 90 degrees to the west, using the same weak electric circuit. The bow pattern device has novelty interest only, adding nothing to the elucidation of the multiplier phenomenon. The same is true of Schreiger's next proposal shown in figure 4. I will now add another apparatus, which is just an extension of the previous one, whereby the needle can take up any angle from 0 to 180 degrees. A short length of circular glass tubing, of inside diameter large enough to contain a compass needle, stands with its axis vertical, and has single or multiple loops of wire wound on it in vertical diametral planes. In the illustration, successive plane coils are inclined at 30 degrees to one another. The electric current flows through the whole wire, and the needle moves under all of these currents, and coming always into another loop can take any desired angle. With much further theorizing about the correlation of magnetism with the cohesion of bodies, Schweiger states again his evaluation of his discovery. Orsted succeeded in electromagnetic research by using a spark-producing cell, which could make a wire glow. My amplifying electromagnetic device needs only a weak circuit of copper, zinc, and ammonium chloride solution. Further words about the new magnetic phenomena. This was presumably written between November 4, 1820, and the January 1, 1821 publication date of his journal. These wonderful new electrical effects are most easily rendered perceptible with the help of the previously described wire loops. To focus attention on just one of the windings of figure 3, we sketch a new drawing, figure 5. Since it is of major importance that these loops be made of silk-covered wire lying evenly on one another, it is convenient to wind the loops on two small slotted sticks of wood, although it is also possible to hold the wires together with wax or shellac, or tie them together in an orderly manner with silk thread. In figure 5, AA and CC represent little slotted rods of wood on which the silk-covered wire is wound. Only three windings are shown in the figure, but I generally adopt three times that many. Now, T is connected with the copper and D with the zinc, and the compass B, set between the rods AA and CC, with the coil perpendicular to the magnetic meridian and the terminals D, T, at the east. The instant Z and K are dipped in the ammonium chloride solution, the needle turns around and stays with the north pole point south. If now the compass is taken out of the coil and put in position B, all effects are reversed, and are considerably weaker for obvious reasons. It is of the same significance whether we bring the compass from 
uppercase b to lowercase b in figure five or from mesh one to mesh two in figure three only that in the latter case because the compass is enclosed by the two sides a stronger effect results if now the coil is rotated so that the face previously north now faces south then on connecting the electric circuit there is absolutely no trace of effect on the needle assuming that the terminal wires are not reversed it seems unnecessary to note that our magnetic coil can be placed in the direction of the magnetic meridian or at any arbitrary angle with it following several pages of further talk about the relation of cohesion to magnetism and about unipolar and bipolar conductors the only additional item of interest is the observation that discharges of a leyden jar strong enough to burn strips of leaf gold and to magnetize an iron rod in a coil produce no compass needle deflections even with the help of the amplifying apparatus schweiger therefore described the basic multiplier idea clearly enough in his first paper but offered no sketch of the simplest construction until the third paper in the second paper meanwhile he had illustrated two peculiar designs involving the principle in less elementary ways his indifference to whether the wire loops lie in the magnetic meridian figure three or perpendicular to it figure five or at any other arbitrary angle to it reveals a poor appreciation of the measuring instrument potentialities his conception seems to be primarily that of a detector pogendorf's invention at first reported by ehrman and presented to a wider audience by gilbert was described as consisting of typically forty to fifty turns of one-tenth line diameter silk-covered copper wire tied tightly together with the hole pressed laterally to form an elliptical opening in which a pivoted compass needle could move freely while maintaining clearance of about two lines from the wire at all points this magnetic condenser can be a great boon to electrochemistry said ehrman for it avoids all the difficulties of electrical condensers he noted that using the condenser pogendorf had already established the electric series for a great number of bodies discovered various anomalies about conductivities and found a way of detecting dissymmetry of the poles of a compass needle on the other hand even with the condenser no magnetic effects have so far been obtainable from a strong tourmaline or from a twelve thousand pair zamboni dry cell pogendorf's own account of his work finally appeared as a very long article in the journal known as oaken's isis the editorial controversies mentioned earlier may have occasioned this use of a periodical of such minor status in the fields of physics and chemistry the source of pogendorf's vision of the multiplier principle was a little different from schweiger's inspiration aiming at some detailed analysis of orsted's observation pogendorf ran the connecting wire of his cell circuit along a vertical line to just above or below the pivot point of the compass needle then after a right angle bend horizontally above or below one of the poles of the needle as he studied the deflections produced for all four possible positions of such a wire with both cell polarities he came to realize that if a rectangular wire loop in a vertical plane enclosed a compass needle all parts of the horizontal sides of the loop would produce 
additive deflections. By a separate experiment, he showed that the vertical sides of the loop would also increase the deflections. He saw at the same time that the effect of additional turns would be cumulative. The multiple surrounding of the needle by a silk-covered wire in a plane perpendicular to the long axis of the needle affords the physicist a very simple and sensitive means of detecting the slightest trace of galvanism, or of magnetism produced by it, so that I have given the names of magnetic condenser to this construction, though I attach no special value to this name. In analyzing the astonishingly increased power which the condenser gives to the magnetic effect of a circuit, the first question that arises is how the effect varies with the number of turns, whether it increases indefinitely or reaches a maximum beyond which additional turns have no effect. The answer to this first question is linked to the solution of another, that is, whether the degrees of deflection are a direct expression of the measure of the magnetic force or not. To instruct myself on this point, I made use of three separate circuits, each containing an eight-turn condenser, and put these as close together as possible in the magnetic meridian, with the needle between the windings. Each single circuit gave a deflection of 45 degrees. When two were connected, the deflection was 60 degrees, and when finally all three were put in magnetic operation, the deflection grew to only 70 degrees. It appears clearly from this that the angle of deflection is not a simple ratio with the magnetic force acting on the needle. Neither Pogendorf nor Schweiger seem to have ruled out, on logical grounds alone, the possibility of deflections greater than 90 degrees with the loop plane in the magnetic meridian, though Pogendorf does add a vague note that if the needle deflected too far, it would encounter forces of the opposite sign. Pogendorf experimented with the size of the circuit wires, finding that larger wires led to greater deflections. He noted that the size of the cell plates and the nature of the cell's moist conductors would certainly have a great effect, but that to investigate these in detail would take undue time, and he therefore proposed to keep this part of the apparatus constant, using one pair of zinc and copper plates, 3.6 inches in diameter, separated by cloth soaked in ammonium chloride solution. Pogendorf's principal quantitative study of his magnetic condenser used 13 identical coils, each with 100 turns. In order that the turns should all be at approximately the same distance from the needle, the coils were wound of the finest brass wire that could be silk insulated, the wire diameter being 0.02 lines or adding coils one at a time across the cell, that is, connecting them in parallel. The deflections were as follows. 100 turns gave a deflection of 45 degrees. 200 turns, 50 degrees. 300 turns, 55 degrees. 400 turns, 59 to 60 degrees. 500 turns, 62. 600 turns, 63. 700 turns, 64. 800 turns, 65. 900 turns, 65 and a half degrees. 1,000 turns, 66 degrees. 1,100, 1,200, and 1,300 turns, 66 degrees. Adding some coils with fewer turns and connecting various combinations as a continuum, that is, in series, 
The deflections using the same cell were one turn gave a deflection of 10 degrees, five turns gave a deflection of 22 degrees, 10 turns gave a deflection of 27 degrees, 25 turns gave a deflection of 30 degrees, 50 turns gave a deflection of between 35 and 40 degrees, 75 turns gave 40 degrees, 100 turns, 200 turns, 300 turns, 400 turns all gave a deflection of 40 degrees, 500 turns gave a deflection of 41 degrees, 600 turns, 700 turns, 800 turns, 900 turns, and 1,000 turns all gave a deflection of 40 degrees. Making a few coils from wire with one-eighth line diameter, the deflections again using the same cell were 5 turns, 20 to 22 degrees in deflection, 25 turns, 40 to 45 degrees in deflection. 50 turns, 45 degrees in deflection. 100 turns, 65 degrees. Over 100 turns, 65 degrees. Since the needle used in these experiments was almost as long as the inside clearance of the coils, no simple tangent law can be applied, and it is not possible to discover an equivalent circuit in modern terms. However, the constancy of the deflections for large number of turns in each case indicates that the cell voltage and resistance were fairly constant, and a rough estimate suggests that the cell resistance was comparable to the resistance of one of the 100-turn coils of fine wire. Such a value means that cell resistance limited the maximum deflections in the parallel connected multipliers, while coil resistance fixed the limit in the series case. For all of these reasons, it was impossible that any useful functional law could be obtained from the data. Hogendorf concluded only that the amplifying power of the condenser does not increase without limit, but has a maximum value dependent on the conditions of plate area and wire size. He added two other significant comments derived from various observations that the basic Orsted phenomenon is independent of the Earth's magnetism, and that the phenomenon is localized, that is, it is not affected by distant parts of the circuit. Only a small fraction of Pogendorf's paper is devoted to elucidating the properties of the condenser. A similar amount is concerned with refuting various proposals, such as those of Berzelius and Ehrman, about distributions of magnetic polarity in a conducting wire to account for Orsted's results. More than half of the paper describes results obtained by using the condenser to compare conductivities and cell polarities under conditions where no effect had previously been detectable. Notable is the observation of needle deflections in circuits whose connecting wires are interrupted by pieces of graphite, manganese dioxide, various sulfur compounds, etc., materials which had previously been considered as insulators in galvanic circuits. Pogendorf gives these the name of semiconductor, Hallblitter. Cummings' first mention of the multiplier phenomenon in his paper of April 2, 1821, is quite casual, and describes only a one-turn construction. He speaks first of a single-turn ring of thick brass wire, and after noting that the sides of a circuit produce additive effects on a needle, he comments that a flattened rectangular loop 
produces nearly quadruple the effect of a single wire. The paper is primarily a review of Orsted's work, with references to electromagnetic observations before Orsted, on accounts of various related but non-multiplier experiments that Cumming has made. His second paper of May 21st contains a fine plate, figure 6, illustrating arrangements used in investigating the subject of the paper's title, the application of magnetism as a measure of electricity. Neither Pogendorf nor any of his commentators ever illustrated his condenser. Although this plate is never referred to in the paper itself, a nearby description gives a few comments. The two wire patterns shown are noted as simply forms of spiral for increasing the electromagnetic intensity. The mounted wire loop, with enclosed compass needle and terminal mercury cups, is clearly identical in principle with the devices of Schweiger and Pogendorf and is called a galvanoscope. The largest structure illustrated does not involve the multiplying effect. It is called a galvanometer, consistent with Ampere's definition of that word. To use it, two leads of a voltaic circuit are inserted into the mercury cups, AC and BD, and the board, EFGH, carrying the cups, is moved vertically until some standard deflection is obtained on the compass needle below. The relative strength of the circuit is then given by the calibrated position of the sliding section. Uncertainties are undoubtedly introduced by the arbitrary positions of the connecting wires from the test circuit to the mercury cups. But Cumming drew some interesting conclusions from various measurements he made. Observing needle deflections for various positions of the wire AB with a constant voltaic circuit, he found that the tangent of the deviation varies inversely as the distance of the connecting wire from the magnetic needle. Here is a combination of the deflection law for a needle in a transverse horizontal field and the magnetic force law for a long straight wire. The latter had been determined experimentally by Biot and Savart in November of 1820 by timing the oscillations of a suspended magnet. Cumming considers his straight wire calibrated galvanometer to be a device for measuring galvanic electricity. On the other hand, his multiple loop galvanoscopes are for discovering galvanic electricity. With the multiplier instrument, he found galvanic effects, that is, the needle deflections, using copper and zinc electrodes with several acids not previously known to create galvanic action. A potassium-mercury amalgam electrode created a powerful cell with zinc as the positive electrode, establishing both the metallic nature of potassium and the fact that it is the most negative of all metals. In a third paper, presented April 28, 1823, Cumming reports use of the galvanoscope in experiments of the thermoelectric phenomena recently discovered by Seebeck. His note that for the more minute effects, a compass was employed in the galvanoscope having its terrestrial magnetism neutralized, seems to be the earliest mention of this version of the astatic principle, a technique whose dramatic effects were especially valuable in low-resistance thermoelectric circuits where the extra resistance of additional multiplier turns largely offsets their magnetic contribution. In detail, the needle is neutralized by placing a powerful magnet 
north and south on a line with its center, and another, which is much weaker, east and west, at some distance above it. By means of the first, the needle is placed nearly at right angles to the meridian, and the adjustment is completed by the second. On varying the length of the connecting wire of the circuit, Cumming found the deflections of the multiplier needle to be a nearly reciprocal relation. He speaks of the conducting power of the wire, and seems not far from visualizing Ohm's law, of which no published form appeared until 1826. Ohm's own experiments were made with very similar apparatus. Conclusions an effort has been made to show that electrical experimenters prior to Orsted's discovery in 1820 were in desperate need of some electrical instrument for galvanic or voltaic circuits that would combine sensitivity, simplicity, reliability, and quick response. The nearly simultaneous creation by Schweiger, Pogendorf, and Cumming of an arrangement consisting of a coil of wire and a compass needle provided the first primitive versions of a device to fill that need. It appears that Schweiger is clearly entitled to credit for absolute priority in the discovery, but the original sources suggest that both his understanding of the device and the subsequent researches he performed with it were markedly inferior to those of the other independent discoverers. In using the generic label Schweiger's Multiplier, there have been historical examples of attributing to Schweiger considerably more sophistication than it justified. Figure 7 shows an instrument designed by Orsted in 1823, which he says differs in only minor particulars from that of Mr. Schweiger. On comparing Figure 7 with Figures 3, 4, or 5, the remark seems overly generous. The history of the multiplier instruments has had its fair share of erroneous reports and misleading clues. A fine example is the illustration of figure 8, taken from what is often quoted as the first report in English on Pogendorf's galvanomagnetic condenser. The sketch is the editor's interpretation of a verbal description, given him by a visiting Danish chemist, who in turn had received the information in a letter from Orsted. It incorporates, faithful to the description, a spiral wire, established vertically, with a needle in the axis of the spiral. Yet by misunderstanding of the axial relations and of the ratio of length to diameter for the coil, a completely meaningless arrangement has resulted. The confusion is compounded by the specifying of an unmagnetized needle. Schweiger and Pogendorf, through their editorial positions, were among the best known of all European scientists for several decades, on one basis or another, their reputations are firmly established. Comparison of the accounts of the early multipliers, however, suggests that the Reverend James Cumming, professor of chemistry at the University of Cambridge, was a very perceptive philosopher. This was well understood by G. T. Bettany, who wrote in the Dictionary of National Biography that Cumming's early papers, though extremely unpretentious, were landmarks in electromagnetism and thermoelectricity, and concluded that he had been more ambitious and of less uncertain health. His clearness and grasp and his great aptitude for research might have carried him into the front rank of discoverers. Acknowledgements I wish to thank Dr. Robert P. Moldhauf, 
chairman of the Department of Science and Technology in the Smithsonian Institution's Museum of History and Technology for encouragement in the writing of this paper, and for the provision of opportunity to consult the appropriate sources. To Dr. W. James King of the American Institute of Physics, I am grateful for many provocative discussions on this and related topics. End of section 12.